We are looking at uh, Luke 22, and it would be helpful if you have a copy of the Bible in whatever form to have it open. Let's pray. Father, we again stop to thank you that you are a God who bothers to make promises and you care to keep them. I thank you that you're not a liar and you're not careless with your word or promise, that your word is a solid foundation for us to build our little lives here and our eternities. Father, we ask that as you promised that you would send your Holy Spirit to those who ask, we ask that you would teach us and that you would transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, have you ever asked someone to make a promise? Just think recently. Has there been a time when you said, I'd like you to, can you promise to do that? Um, it's a thing that children do, at least in my experience, more often than adults. Adults sometimes do it when they're forming contracts. Uh, that's a form of a promise. But can you remember the last time when you asked someone else to promise to you or you or they asked you, come on, I'll please promise? Because, see, what a promise does, it gives us some security about the future. Now, of course, it depends whether or not the person who makes the promise is trustworthy. One of the marks of the people of God, according to Psalm 15, is that we keep our word even to our own hurt. That might be a relevant verse even for this week for you. That we keep our word. Our word is our bond. And we do that because that's what our father is like. The other father of the race, according to Jesus in John 8, is a liar and the father of lies. So we've been looking at this business of promises, particularly under the big word of covenant. What is the difference between a covenant and a promise? See, we actually heard in the Old Testament reading that God promises to make a new covenant. So it's kind of he's promising to promise. It's a little bit like when you get engaged. You kind of make a... So it's only a soft promise. It's, a, it's an agreement that I think you can legitimately move out of. But you promise to make a promise. And in Jeremiah, the prophet, and God through the prophet, promises to bring in a new covenant. And a covenant is a promise. But as we've mentioned before, and it's, worth, it's a particular sort of promise. In our culture, it's like the difference between a promise and a contract. You really feel bound when you get the pens out and you sign the contract to buy something, you know, to pay it off over time, whether it be a house or whatever. And there is a difference when you've signed and before you've signed. Uh, but a, a covenant in the days when the Bible was being put together is the equivalent of a contract. Uh, from God's point of view, when he makes a promise that isn't a covenant, it's as binding on his heart as a covenant. He makes covenants for our sake, to assure us just how seriously he means the promises that he makes that really do seem a little crazy sometimes. And we may well wonder, say with the promise to Abraham, has God forgotten his promise? To which the answer is no. But often it will take thousands of years as God works things through to the ultimate fulfilment of his promise. And a covenant, remember we talked about this crazy rituals that we know that happen in the Bible and they happen outside the Bible where people make covenants and they use this word, they cut a covenant. And for many years people didn't quite know why is that the verb used to make a covenant? You cut a covenant. 
And now, having studied the scriptures carefully and having heard it from uh, cultures around the Bible through archaeology and things like that, we know that the reason they call it cutting a covenant is when you made a covenant, you cut animals in half. We saw that when we looked at Genesis 15. When God wants to assure Abraham of his promise by making a covenant, he cuts a number of animals in half. And what happens in those is that the people making the covenant or the promise to each other walk between the dead animals. And they're kind of saying more seriously, but are not unlike what I remember we used to do as kids. And I must confess, haven't said it for decades. When we used to say sometimes, cross my heart and hope to die. That's, that's actually coming from the same world where you're saying, I really mean this promise. Cross my heart, which was probably a religious crossing. Cross my heart and I hope to die if I don't keep the promise. Now that's what's happening in the covenant. Right? That God, God or the people walking through it are saying, this is absolutely solemn and serious. So a covenant and a promise are kind of the same thing, but a covenant is a promise on steroids. Right? It, it's very solemn it's a contracted promise. And the Bible is driven by covenants. That's why we've been looking at it. To understand this is not a collection of 66 books with a whole lot of interesting religious ideas and a few wise suggestions. It's actually a very clear story working its way through from the first couple of chapters of the Bible right through to the end. Uh, God making and keeping his promise. So just, just a quick review, and we may come back to this. this. This is the first of two weeks on the new covenant. Andrew Vella took us through the, the promise in the Old Testament of, of the new covenant. So for the, this week and next week, we're going to look at parts in the New Testament where it outlines the meaning of the new covenant, because that's where we live. If you're in a relationship with God now, you're in a covenant relationship with him. And it's best to understand the relationship you're in, and why wouldn't you? It's full of treasures. But these sort of promises start in chapter 3, verse 15, at the very latest. And this is a promise that I, I was, you know, those things where, as a Christian, you, know, you meet other people and they get really excited about something, but you think, oh, I don't know what that's so... I mean, I was like that for years with the fact that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. I just, yeah, yeah, but that's, now I understand why that's so significant in the culture and in our culture, that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus... Well, not the disciples, but some of the women who were also disciples. This is the one that I, I got excited about last year when we did our series on Genesis together. This is said by God to Satan. Uh, he's deceived the man and the woman, and he says this in chapter 3, verse 15. This is a promise that just is moving all the way to Jesus and even beyond, well, through God says, I will, speaking to Satan, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Right? Very interesting. So it's the woman, her seed. The bloke is left out of the story. She will have a seed. The woman, through her will come. Someone who will crush Satan's head, but it will hurt him. Right? It's not some sort of superhero who just flies in and does his thing and doesn't get badly hurt by it. And you can see that, can't you? This is, this is heading straight to Jesus. But it just the promise is laid there and hardly anything is said about it. 
But a promise from God is never forgotten by him, no matter how much we may not appreciate it. But I just think it's amazing that in the third chapter of the Bible, there is this very explicit promise that is beautifully and perfectly fulfilled in the suffering victory of Jesus Christ over evil. So there's one of the great promises God makes. Then we looked at the, the covenant. God cut a covenant with Noah after the flood. Remember, this is a covenant which is made with Noah, but more important with all humanity and, in fact, all the animal kingdom. It's a unilateral promise. That is, it's a promise that God makes which doesn't have any conditions for us to fulfill. In fact, the assumption is that we're such rubbish, we need a unilateral promise. So a unilateral promise is made through Noah that God will always keep the creation functioning. He won't flood it again, no matter how evil humankind becomes. Then in chapter 12, picked up in chapter 15 and 17 of Genesis, we have the, the promise or the covenant to Abraham. That's the famous one where the animals are cut and the, the fire and the smoke goes up and down between the animals. Abraham doesn't even walk between them. It's God saying, I will keep this covenant. I will bless you. I will give you offspring. I will make you a blessing to all humankind. And he's not asking Abraham at this point to enter a, a bilateral covenant. It's unilateral. Very important. And this is the promise to Abraham that just keeps surging its way quietly and driving its way all the way through Jesus and is still being fulfilled by God. That through the seed of Abraham, the world, the whole world is being blessed. Which is why when you pick up Jesus in Matthew, as we looked a couple of weeks ago, the first thing that's said of him in Matthew's gospel, the very first words in the New Testament is, he is a son of Abraham. Now that, that ooh, this is, this is part of God keeping his fulfilment to bless all people through his, his descendants. So, so there's this promise, it's a unilateral promise to Abraham. And then out of that grows the promise we looked at a couple of weeks ago, which is to do with Israel and Mount Sinai and Moses, and that is a bilateral covenant. Here it is God making promises to Israel, the nation, the descendants of Abraham, but they also have to enter the covenant. So it's bilateral. It's, it's, it's actually often pictured, as we heard in uh, Jeremiah 31, as a, it's a husband and wife thing, where there's promises made on both sides. And that's the promise that really dominates visually and through the story, the Bible. This relationship between God, the God of Abraham, the God of Mount Sinai, and Israel. It's a husband and wife thing, and it doesn't go all that well. In fact, it reaches a time when the Bible will say once or twice that God divorces Israel. Now, he doesn't fully and finally, but he brings a certain end to the sort of relationship they had. But also we have, further down that road, we have another covenant that grows out of the covenant to the people of Israel, and that's the covenant to David, where David thinks, how come I'm living in this fancy palace and the ark or the symbol of God's presence is living in a tent? I'll build a house for the Lord. And God says, you're going to build me a house? No, you're not. I'll build you a house meaning a household, you know, a family. And he promises that one of David's descendants will always reign over his people and be a source of blessing to everyone. Now, that's, that's a unilateral promise. It, when we looked at that, it actually assumes that the descendants of David will be rubbish, 
and will often need to be disciplined, but God will keep his promise to David and therefore through his descendants. So when we meet Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he is the son of Abraham, the son of David. And you go, oh, okay. These are two of these unilateral promises to bless, and this guy seems to be the one. So there, there's the story of these covenants. Some of them are unilateral, some of them are bilateral. And much of the Bible is the story, the Old Testament is the story of this relationship between God and Israel, and it's normally messy. In fact, they haven't left Mount Sinai, where they originally meet with God. They haven't sort of, as it were, left the, the wedding reception, and they're committing adultery with someone who was at the party. I mean, it's shocking. They are worshipping other gods at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's, you know, <laughs> really, that's a... That uh, romance didn't last too healthy for too long. So they're the covenants that God has made, and God always keeps his promises. And you can be doubly sure when he's bothered to make it a covenant. Now we're moving on to the promised covenant, the, the new covenant. God promises he'll bring in a new solemn contract and promise, which takes us to uh, Luke 22. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a mountain of very exciting stuff. We are going to have a Q&A time after this, um, if, if that's uh, useful. And, uh, but let's have a look at the, the heart of this, because this is one of the best-known parts of the life of Jesus. People who aren't Christians will often speak of the Last Supper of someone. This is Jesus' Last Supper. It really is the Last Supper of the Passover, where the Passover ceases to be a thing that God is all that interested in, in terms of our ritual and turns it into the Lord's Supper. Let's have a look at this new covenant. Now, when it comes to Luke 22 that was read for us, we're really only going to focus on one section, unfortunately, just because of time. But um, the way to misunderstand the Bible is to not care about the, cover, the context. So I, I do remember, and I've shared this once before, but I remember being in a high school when I was being trained as a youth minister um, in 14... 73, I think I was there, and the, the guy who was training me, a guy called John Kitson, who's a legend, John was running this thing, and, and one of the, he'd given a talk, presentation, and been a bit of music, and uh, this thoughtful young woman said, look, wh why should we take the Bible seriously? It's full of contradictions. You know, it's just, it's, you, know you, can, you can prove anything from the Bible, she said. And John said, yeah, uh, have you got an example of a contradiction? And she said, no. He said, and John said, I'll, I'll help, I'll give you one. And so she said, okay. He said, uh, Psalm 14, there is no God. And she, she celebrated. There you go, she said. Yeah, this book's all about God, and there is smack bang in the middle. There is no God. And then John, as gently as he could, because he was kind of setting her up a little bit. Let me read the context. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, and that, I think that's a helpful example because often when you hear something that the Bible says and you go, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, that doesn't make any sense. And it's often something like that where someone has taken a word or a phrase, not told you who said it. They're all the words of the devil in the Bible. Oh, you can quote those if you like. But the crucial thing always is to read the context. Read the context. Keep reading, keep reading. Get familiar with the way that the Bible and the passage thinks. And the crucial context for the Last Supper is what? Just... Did you notice the word that was said again and again and again in that reading? About six, seven times. Anyone notice? I'll read it again. No, no. The word is Passover. 
we keep getting told it's the Passover. This is the day that the Passover lamb is slaughtered. This is the day of unleavened bread when the Passover starts. We're constantly told that Jesus is thinking about the Passover. So he says, I've eagerly longed. It's a very powerful word. I've, it's almost the word I've lusted to do this. I've been really longing to do this last supper, this Passover with you. It really matters to Jesus, which is why I think he does the secrecy stuff. But we can look at that uh, later on, perhaps. It's the Passover. Now, many of us know what the Passover is. It's, it's, a, very, it's, a, it's a beautiful word. It's a made-up word just for this event. When the angel of death went through the land of Egypt and passed over some houses, but passed through other houses. And if the angel of death went through your house, the firstborn in the household died. It was a terribly serious and solemn and rare event. This was the end of 12 steps that God had taken to try and get the Pharaoh to release his people. It started off very small. It's been rightly said, I think, when God starts off throwing pebbles at your window, it's best to pay attention because if you don't pay attention, he may end up chucking rocks through the window. And the Pharaoh finished up getting a very large brick through his window. He had been engaged in killing God's firstborn. Israel is often called the Lord's firstborn. And he, had been, he was engaged in genocide. All the boys were being murdered. The women would just be made slaves of the Egyptians. And um, God was going to rescue them. Finally, they get to this last one and God says, okay, um, this is it. This is the Passover. And it, the Pharaoh will throw you out of the land after this. And what they're told to do, the Israelis are told to do, is to take a lamb. Had to, it was interesting. had to be perfect and had to come and live in the household for three or four days. So it became like a pet. It wasn't just, you know, out there in the paddock. So it was, it was kind of a beloved lamb. Then on the certain day, it was to be killed quickly and its blood was to be painted on the doorposts of the house and on the lintel across the top. And then the, anyone could go. There's no indication the Egyptians weren't allowed to join if they wanted to. Then the people could go into the household and they had to eat the lamb, the whole of it. And they had to eat this special bread. It was special because they didn't have time to cook it properly or to wait for the yeast to work. So it's unleavened bread. Because God knows as soon as this happens, Pharaoh's going to kick them out and they're going to be free at last. So it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. So that they paint the blood and the angel of death comes in and if he sees the blood, the angel of death will pass over the house and you're safe. If their blood is not there, the place is not safe. This is so God, isn't it? It's like the ark, isn't it? Right? When judgment comes, God always creates a safe place. Uh, where you can be safe, and he does that here through the blood, through the lamb, which is why the Bible will call Jesus the Lamb of God. Right? Not the lamb that we sacrifice at great personal expense, but that his beloved son becomes the lamb. So that's the Passover, that's the event. And this was one of the two biggest events. You could not be a member of God's people and not celebrate the Passover. You said, well, I got offered a double shift and it's double pay. I'd like to go to Passover, but I can't write. You're not a member of the people of God. Right? If, that's, if that's how you think. It was a compulsory part of being part of the old covenant. And the Jews did it every year. And many of you will know Jewish people would have done it in Canberra this year. We had a couple of years ago a Jewish Christian man who came in and did the Passover with us here and showed us how it all worked and what the various symbols meant because it's a very fixed liturgy that Jews have been doing for thousands of years 
It's in four main sections. There's a number of songs that they sing uh, at various points, some of the psalms. There's seven different times that they drink wine. For those of you concerned about them getting drunk, you'll be pleased to know that the Jews tended to drink their wine two parts water, one part wine. And that's not two parts water and one part vodka. Okay, that's, it's wine. So that they would have these different... And they had all these words that were said about God's rescue of them, said over various things. And the Jews, the, the disciples, would have known them all off by heart because they've been doing it since they were little kids. And uh, this is almost certainly the third Passover Jesus would have done with his friends. They'd been together for three years. But this is a special one that Jesus really wanted to not have it interfered with. And the context to understand Jesus' words here are the Passover. Right? And it's not a secret. You can find it in Exodus 11 and 12. And you can find it just from talking with Jewish people. That's, that's the context that gives you an understanding of what's going on. So let's look at... The, um, the central part of it, there's other things that would be uh, worthwhile looking at, but we're just going to tonight look at the central part. And this is the one time, as far as I'm aware, where Jesus uses the word new covenant, right? where he will pick up that phrase from Jeremiah 31 and says, it's on. It's new covenant time. Let me read you the words from verse 19. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So four things. This bread is my body. My body has been given for you. Do this. Right? There's a command. That's why we're doing it. Because Jesus said, do it. In what way do it? In remembrance of me. Right? Filling our minds with a recollection of his body being broken. Verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. If you can look at Matthew and Mark and then in 1 Corinthians 11, you'll find the same events described with slight differences in the wording. Some of them are shorter than others. Well, let's have a look at this first thing, what he says about the bread, what he says about the wine, and about the new covenant. Unfortunately, as some of you all know, this has, there's been a bit of controversy about exactly what Jesus means. But context will help us, I think, understand what Jesus says and means. This is my body. Now, you will probably know that some Christians think Jesus means this very literally. And when I've had discussions with friends, oh, this is the Roman Catholic Church. It's one of the really obvious differences between the Roman Catholic Church. It's, the Orthodox Church has got a different take. Sounds a bit similar, but the Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox, Roman Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, etc., similar but different. But the Roman Catholic Church is very strong in taking these words with absolute literalness. This is my body. So they say to someone like me, hey, you're supposed to be a you know, mad Protestant who takes the Bible seriously. Surely you should take it literally. I said, no, 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 no. Taking the Bible seriously is not equal to taking things literally that are not meant to be literal. So, for example, in the Psalms, full of beautiful poetry, it says the mountains will clap their hands. Now, if you really picture that as great earthy hands going, kathump, kathump, that's not taking the Bible seriously. Because if it's something's not meant to be taken literally, it oughtn't to be, that's not taking it seriously. Now, the question is, did Jesus mean this literally? He could have. This is my body. Well, 
How can we find out what he means? I think in a number of ways. You could, for example, look at verse 20 when Jesus has a very similar thing. This cup is the new covenant. Well, it isn't, if you take it literally. The cup is not the new covenant. Right? The, the covenant is a promise and a relationship. So when Jesus says in the very next verse, this cup is the covenant, he's saying it symbolises, it stands for. But much more helpful is simply this. I remember the moment when I read this in the, in the Siddah, the, the outline of the Jewish Passover. Here's what gets said a number of times, and particularly at this moment in the, in the supper. The, 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 the um, patron or the patriarch or the host, which would have been Jesus, the main man in the building at the time, he would have stood up with this unleavened bread and break it or hand it out to the other people uh, there for the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he would say these words. This is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. And that is what these guys would have heard many, many times. They're adults. They would have done it with Jesus at least twice before. What they're expecting Jesus to say is, this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Now, the daring thing Jesus is doing is he's changing not the this is, but he's changing what it symbolises or points to. None of the disciples, no Jew, would then or now ever think that when you say the words, this is the bread of affliction, that something miraculous happens to the bread. It does not suddenly become in Jesus' time bread that's 1,200 years old or in our day, 3,000 years old. There's no transformation in the nature of the bread, but it's gone from being ordinary bread to symbolically reminding you of something you mustn't forget, but you're very likely to forget, that the only reason why Israel existed was because of what God did at the Passover. And it shows them who God is, it shows who they are, and it mustn't be forgotten, or they will lose themselves, which they often did. But this was to, this, this is, this is my body. The amazing thing which we'll look at in a second is the way in which Jesus turns this whole thing to being about him when it's all supposed to be about what God did back then. And this is not like Anzac Day where we set it up so we can change it. God sets up the Passover, right, in Exodus 11. He'll tell you what it's about. There's something very dangerous and risky that Jesus is doing by changing it. But what does he mean by this is my body? Well, the context, I think, makes it really clear. He's saying this bread symbolically is, represents, brings to your mind my body, which is broken. Do this in remembrance of me, which is what the Passover is about. Jesus does say elsewhere, and some of you will know this, says things like, I am the door. Take Jesus seriously. Does he really expect you to sort of inspect him for hinges? But he says, I'm the door. And he doesn't say, this is a parable. He just says it as flatly as he says here. And you know, he's not saying he is literally a door. Or when he says, I'm the vine. No, I wonder where his roots are. Has he got good soil? No, no, no. He's saying, understand who, what this picture means. So Jesus is saying, this is my body. It's given for you. And do this in remembrance of me. 
The whole thing is coherent with the Passover. The other thing which I'll just leave for now, because it could take too long to explain, if, as my Roman Catholic friends, and, and frankly, I've got a, a friend who's a Vatican Knight. I didn't even know those things still existed. Um, he's one of the most impressive human beings I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And, um, and we, we differ on this. But you can disagree with people without being disrespectful. This is not a Catholic bashing session any more than when I've been to Catholic masses, which I've been to quite often, and they have a bit of a crack at the Protestants, like me, for not honouring Mary and for, and for some of this stuff. I don't think, oh, you, you dirty bigots bashing. We, we differ. So we can, we can argue and, and be respectful. But the simple fact is that the Roman Catholic Church has taught for about eight, 900 years, hasn't been teaching it since Jesus came. That is a myth that some of your Catholic friends are. We've always, no, you haven't. Right? Look, at there were huge debates about the nature of what these words meant in the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th century. And frankly, the baddies won the argument, which does happen sometimes. Uh, they got the dominant place. But since uh, Thomas Aquinas, it's been quite clear in some of the great councils of the Roman Catholic Church, but they do believe, just up at the Catholic Church up here at Waniassa, this morning when they did the Mass, when the priest says, this is my body, the Roman Catholic Church absolutely believes that a, a complete miracle has happened and that is no longer bread. It's appropriate to bow down and worship it, which we think, what are you doing? Because when the priest says, this is my body, its substance changes. It looks and smells and tastes like bread. It is not bread. It is transubstantiated. Now, you may have a Catholic friend who says, no, I don't believe that. Well, they're just not being genuinely Catholic. There's no room for any debate for a genuine Roman Catholic because the Catholic Church at Trent I, Trent II, Vatican I and Vatican II has affirmed this is what's going on. It is an absolute miracle, just like the miracle of Lazarus coming out of the tomb. And they, they actually would argue that what happens at the Lord's Supper is a bloodless sacrifice that Jesus Christ is being offered again as he was on the cross, which is why if you listen to the Anglican service, it will often say the one sacrifice once offered, right? Because they say, no, 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 it's not happening every week. I think it's just a mistake. Because there's no way the disciples believed that when they heard it. There's no reason to think Jesus thought it. And brothers and sisters, if, if this miracle that my Roman Catholic friends think is true is what's going on, and for them it's the most important thing that you can do as a Christian, that's why you won't go to a Roman Catholic service that isn't a Mass or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, because that's the thing. That's the job of priests, is that they are authorised to do this everyday miracle every time they say the words. My suggestion is this. If that was what any of the New Testament writers thought, how come they never talk about it? The only other mention of the Lord's Supper in all the letters is because the Corinthians are coming to a drunk and misbehaving. The Corinthians managed to wreck just about everything. It's very encouraging. If you think St. Matt's is a mess, no, we're doing pretty good compared to the Corinthians. And they had the Apostle Paul as their founding pastor. But, um, but so that's the only time it's mentioned. And thank God it was mentioned. But all the letters of the Apostle John never mentions it. The two letters of Peter never mentions it. They're all talking how to grow as a Christian. You can't possibly be a Roman Catholic and not talk about the Eucharist because that is a central where the God and you meet through that. 
But when Peter talks about it, James talks about it, Jude talks about it, they just never mention it. So I just think, again, in terms of context, it's an argument from silence, but it's a very powerful silence. Right? Um, moving on. Sorry to spend so long on that, but there's, a mu- there's much confusion, and ordinary Christians can be thrown into confusion by this. But the bread speaks of the terrible sacrifice that God does. This is my body, which is given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And the wine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You've got again that important phrase, it's done for you. The body is broken, the blood is poured out for you. And I hope you hear that when you take the bread and the wine uh, today. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Here Jesus wants to speak about not just the brokenness of his body as he is sacrificed, but what comes from it, the blood. And the Bible will often speak of the blood as that which cleanses us and brings us forgiveness. I was asked this week a really good question. Uh, why, why is the new covenant only referenced by Jesus in, when he's talking about the blood or the wine? Why not the bread? And I don't know the answer. But here's my suggestion. If you go back to, well, I, I, let me say, I think I know the answer, but it's only, um, you, you'll have to work out why. I think he does it because it's the blood. It's the cutting of the covenant and the shedding of blood. When we talk about death, it's often called the shedding of blood. No blood was shed or blood was shed. So it's the way that we often speak about death in many cultures. When God made the old covenant, if, if, if you want to call it that, the covenant with, at Mount Sinai with Israel, the descendants of Abraham through Moses. They get offered the covenant. God says these beautiful, it's one of my favourite verses in the Bible where God says in Exodus 19 to Israel, you have seen how I brought you to myself as on the wings of an eagle. It's a beautiful picture of God carrying his people out of slavery to himself. Then he offers them his hand in marriage. And they get to think, "Do do we want to be in relationship with this person? They, in the end, have a couple of chapters where God's outlining what the covenant will involve from chapters 19 to 24. Then we have, here's the moment when the covenant is sealed and it's to do with blood, not to do with bread. 24-7. That's an easy verse to remember, isn't it? 24-7. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey beautiful isn't it right that's the saying yep i promise to abandon all others to love and protect to be faithful only to you it's the wedding day the wedding vow moses then took the blood which he'd gathered earlier sprinkled it on the people it's a little bit creepy isn't it right takes the blood of dead animals and sprinkles it on the people who've just said yes we're in the covenant sprinkled it on the people and said this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So I think that's why the new covenant is only mentioned when it, it talks about his blood being shed, because that's the moment when the covenant is sealed. Right? Now, it's a bilateral contract, and they blow it. This one isn't. This cup is the new covenant in, in my blood, which is poured out for you. In the other Gospels and in 1 Corinthians, it's added quite explicitly that he dies and gives his blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
to, be, to release us. So this is the symbolic meal, like the Passover, of the new covenant. Next week, we will spend more time looking at the specific features of the new covenant, and they are twofold. Uh, you heard it in Jeremiah. It's said again in Ezekiel 36, but he says this. The days are coming when I'll make a covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke that covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it in their hearts. So it won't be just a question of seeing the Ten Commandments out there and giving it your best shot. He's saying, I will do something to their hearts. Uh, it'll be internalised by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the second thing is, the doorway in is a massively big doorway of forgiveness. I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. We will have a look at that next week when we look at Hebrews 8, which deals with that passage. So for the so what for us tonight, I know you'd like me to go longer, but we mustn't. Don't forget. Don't forget that God never forgets his promises. Even if you'd never thought about Genesis 3.15 when he says, the seed of the woman will crush evil and it will bruise him. Or you may never have thought of the promise to Abraham. God never forgets his promise. We often forget our promises to God. We're often so lazy we're not even aware of the promises and covenants God has made. But don't forget, he never forgets his promise. Never. Don't forget that he died for you. He sets up this thing with the bread to say, I died for you. My body was broken for you. That's how valuable you are to God. You can see how precious you are to someone by what they will pay or do to save you. You could not be more precious. You may not value yourself. Your family may have taught you that you're rubbish. All of life may have been failure, failure, failure. You are, you are so valuable to God that his son, the lamb, will die for you. He is broken for you, and we remember that in the bread and the wine. And lastly, don't forget that he forgets. Now God has got a very strong area where he specialises in amnesia, total and complete. What is emphasised in Genesis, in uh, sorry Jeremiah 31 at the end, and, and Hebrews 8 will celebrate this next week as well. Listen to what God says about the new covenant. I will forgive their wickedness. Well, that's pretty good. And I will remember their sins no more. Right? God will never forget his promises, but don't you forget that he will forget your sins. So you may have a sin that you've committed a hundred times in the last few months. You may have already committed it today in some way. Whether speech, thought, act, whatever word, whatever it was. Or there may be some particular sin that you did decades ago that still haunt you. Here's the message of God in the new covenant, why Jesus shed his blood. He will remember their sins no more. So if you've come and put your trust in Jesus and said, I want into this covenant relationship, he's saying, what you need to know is, I'm not interested in your sins. I've forgiven them. More than forgiven them, I've forgotten them. I've met people who've said who've had something terrible done to them or something often harder, even something terrible done to someone they love. And they can say, I think I can forgive, but I can never forget. Right? God is saying here, I can forget, no matter what sin uh, may haunt you. And I want to sh finish by sharing with you one of my favourite true stories. Some of you will have heard it again, have heard it before, and I know you'll be delighted to hear it again. 
because it's so wonderful. If you don't want to hear it again, tell me after the service and I'll try not to, you know. But here's the, here's the true story. Roman Catholic mission in uh, the middle of the highlands of New Guinea. Hospital, school, church. And most of the villagers had become Christians of the Roman Catholic type. And this priest had a, had a woman in his church who was a lovely lady, just a simple villager, never educated. But she insisted that at various times when she was praying, Jesus himself would turn up and talk with her. Now, the priest is a Western man, so he knows this is probably a psychiatric illness. He doesn't he has trouble believing. I mean, why on earth would Jesus turn up and talk to this woman in, in the highlands of New Guinea, and he doesn't even do it for the Pope? So he, he was not very convinced. So in the end, she, they talked about it off and on. He said, listen, next time Jesus comes to you and talks to you, ask him this question. He said, your priest, before I became a priest, I did something really terrible. Hardly anyone knows about it, but I'm deeply ashamed of it, and it troubles me. You ask Jesus, what is the priest, what is the secret sin that our priest did? He said, and if, if you can come back with the answer to that, I'll believe it was Jesus. A couple of weeks later, she comes to church. As they're going out, she catches his eye. So she comes over. Just in case she was right, he takes her away from the crowd. So that's going to be a private conversation. And he says, what did Jesus say? Jesus, he, she said, Jesus told me he wants you to know that he cannot remember. My hunch is that she was actually meeting with Jesus in some way. Because that's a weird thing. That is not a thing. Most religions would find that. If, you mean that the Son of God has got amnesia? That is a very new covenant thing. It's beautiful, isn't it? That he says he can't remember. So there's no point the priest going and says, oh, Jesus, please forgive me. Forgive you for what? Right? It's a very powerful way of God saying that when he forgives, he totally forgives. Whether it be murder, adultery, something hot, even worse. You take that sin to Christ, you take it seriously, he forgives and forgets. This is one of the two great blessings of the new covenant, the perfection and the power of Jesus' death to overwhelm us and to overwhelm our sins. It's a wonderful thing to be a member of the new covenant, to have that deep, rich forgiveness. And part of Christian growth, friends, is actually growing to understand and to believe what we believe so that you'll sing and dance with the freedom that comes from that. That's part one. See you next week for part two on the new covenant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your cleverness in turning the Passover meal from a recollection of the great work in Egypt and making it all about you and what you have done in a far better rescue and salvation. Thank you that you did suffer and die terribly to bring in the new covenant, that your body was broken. Thank you that you want us to remember this and to celebrate it and to feast on your love for us. Thank you that you are the Lamb of God, not our sacrifice, but his sacrifice that completely vanquishes our sin and guilt. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to really believe what is true, that we may rejoice in your grace. We ask for this blessing ultimately for your glory. Amen.